0: So we've got the second candle lit today, it's the second Sunday in Advent, the waiting preparation time for Christmas. And Matthew 3, the reading today, tells us about John, Jesus' cousin, who spent his life preparing the way for Jesus. He wasn't one to mince words or feeling the need to be politically correct, he was actually a pretty strange guy as you'll hear, totally sold out and radical for God. Matthew also quotes scripture that his audience would be familiar with, saying that what was happening was long time in the making. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, He baptized them in the river Jordan, Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee this coming wrath? Prove by the way that you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be
1: to God. Thank you Anna for that encouraging scripture reading today. Anna, are you from are you from North England or no, north of London? South. That's the that cuz you say Roth and I think that's south I've got it right now. Roth is south of London and Roth is north. Okay, got it. All right. It's true. No, it's true. I don't know. I'm jet-lagged, man. I don't know where I'm at. (laughs) The phone rang at 12.45 a.m. in the earliest hour of December 5th, 2019, letting us know that it was time to pack and leave Jerusalem. So down seven flights of stairs, Cindy and I went with our luggage to a waiting bus outside, all aboard, and at 1.30 a.m., we began the 40-mile ride to Ben-Gurion International Airport in Tel Aviv, Checkpoint one at the airport border. Checkpoint two at the door. Checkpoint three at the counter. Checkpoint four in facial recognition software at border control. Checkpoint five at the gate. It felt like forever. So at 5.30 in the morning, finally, all aboard. Once again, we take off for Amsterdam. One time zone and 2,060 miles away. It too felt like forever. We land and process through security once again. We make a mad dash for the gate to make our connection, me stopping long enough to buy my wife a bona fide American creation, a Coca-Cola, for $5 out of a machine. At the gate, security checks us again, yes, and we embark at 10.30 a.m. for Atlanta, Georgia, across the sea, 4,398 nautical miles away, a flight that takes nine and a half hours. And it felt like, mercifully, at 2:15 p.m. we land. It is still December 5th. <laughs> Through customs and security, we pilgrims proceed and finally arrive at Gate Four of the B Terminal at Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport and climb aboard the last flight to Pensacola at 5:17 p.m. And it felt like forever. We land, reacquire our long-separated luggage, board the van shuttle for the ride back here to the church. It felt like forever. Somebody moved Santa Rosa Beach all the way to Jacksonville, it felt. We spill out of the vans, foggy from travel, exhausted by the hour. hours. Faye car won't start. A quick search for jumper cables, a boost, and she was off with the wind. The ride to Freeport felt like. Forever. We walked into our house at 9:02 p.m. It was still December 5th. <laughs> we had crossed eight time zones where passengers on three airplanes, two buses, one train covered 7,000 miles and it took forever. No, not quite forever, only 30 hours. It was a feat that our ancestors would have thought impossible. 30 hours. 500 years ago, that same journey, if you could have survived it, would have taken a minimum of 150 days. Five months. Hard to complain about 30 hours. And it would have felt like forever for our ancestors. To quote the late, great P.R. Nelson, better known simply as Prince. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing we call life. Do you know the rest of it? Life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But life isn't forever. Not this life that we have. Travel doesn't take forever. The time it takes for Christmas to arrive doesn't take forever. Oh God, Dad, I hate algebra class. I hate school. I'll never get through. It's taking me forever. No, it's not. Just a few years, and you'll look back on it one day and... Be happy for the years that you had. This line at Walmart takes forever. No, it doesn't. The cashier's probably only making eight bucks an hour. Be patient. She's doing the best that she can. You'll get through in a few minutes. These kids are driving me insane. They'll never get off the bottle. They'll never get potty trained. He'll never give up up the pacifier. Yeah, he will. It's not going to take forever, and you'll look back at those days when your children were young, and they will have disappeared. These days whisk away, and there's a lot of things that take time, but it doesn't take forever. James Joyce, that Irishman that some of us were forced to read, but we're better off for it because we did, illustrated maybe forever with a story best. Paraphrasing paraphrasing him, he asked, Have you seen the sand on the seashore? Look at all those tiny grains. How many are in a single Small handful. Now imagine a mountain of that sand, a million miles high, a million miles wide, and a million miles thick. And imagine that at the end of every one million years, a little bird comes to that mountain and carries away in his beak one tiny grain of sand. How many millions upon millions of centuries would pass before that bird even carried away a single square foot? How many eons upon eons before it could carry it all away? At the end of all those billions and trillions of years, forever would have just begun. Quoting him, And if that mountain rose again after it had been carried all the way grain by grain, and if it so rose and sank as many times as there are stars in the sky, atoms in the air, and drops of water in the sea, at the end of all those risings and sinkings, not even one single instant of eternity could be have said to have passed. The mere thought of forever makes our brain real. And we know this. Forever is a mighty long time. So whatever we are waiting for or waiting on or waiting to be completed is nothing by comparison. Still, I know that this is cold comfort. Maybe no comfort at all when you are the one doing the waiting, right? Waiting on a train. Waiting on an airplane to finally and mercifully land. Waiting on a loved one to get home for the holidays. Waiting on that call from the pathologist Waiting on the results to come in. Waiting for a wayward child to finally grow up. Waiting for morning sun to at least break the darkness, though it can do nothing about the black hole that you feel inside. Waiting, waiting, waiting. It can be torturous, can't it? Thus arrives the second Sunday of Advent. There are five candles traditionally in an Advent wreath. We can thank the Lutherans primarily for that. Yay, Lutherans. Three are purple, one is pink, one is white. In reverse, the white candle is the Christ candle. It is lit only on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. The pink candle is the candle of joy, always lit on the third Sunday of Advent. And the purple candles, the other three, depending upon the tradition, they move around. But today is usually the candle of hope or prophecy, sometimes called the candle of John the Baptist. No matter, it's the same thing, hope, prophecy, John the Baptist. It's all about waiting until something comes to an end and finally it arriving. We are talking about forever coming to a close. So obviously the reading today is about John the Baptist. I love this guy. And in the last few years I've come to appreciate him and come to know him in a way that I really did not know him previously. So I've come to a bold but I think defensible conclusion Outside of Jesus, John the Baptist might be the most important person in the Gospels. Not Peter, not the other John or James or Mary, John the Baptist. His time is short, but he brought the great centuries-long waiting to its appropriate conclusion and opened the door for the one who was to come. It is not an exaggeration to say that without John the Baptist, there is no Jesus. He is the hinge upon which the old and the new must turn. Here is his backstory, a little bit of it anyway. Pontius Pilate arrived as the Roman governor of Jerusalem in 26 A.D., according to the historian Josephus. He had two great characteristics. We don't know a lot about him from history, but we know two great things about him. Number one, he was incredibly arrogant. And number two, he was remarkably ignorant. Here is what he did. During the night, just after he arrived, his first day in the country, he placed imperial icons of Caesar on the Temple Mount. The Jews wake up the next morning, and there they are, and they lose their minds. They are flabbergasted. It is sacrilege to the highest degree. They had fought wars for lesser offenses than that. And Pilate either doesn't know this history or doesn't care what to do. Well, a group of leading priests and scribes walked two days from Jerusalem to Caesarea, To confront Pilate over what he has done. And they beg him to remove the icons. Because it is such sacrilege. And he refuses. So you know what they did? They had a sit down strike. They all sat down in his palace floor right there. And refused to move for a day. Two days. Three days. Four days. Five days. At the end of the fifth day Pilate has had enough. And he commands his soldiers to go into his own palace. And to cut their throats. Kill them all and get them out of here. And when the soldiers come in with their swords, the priests and scribes rip their tunics open and expose their throats. And they say, go ahead, this is the hill we die on. And Pilate did something that no Roman governor had ever done before. He relented. He backed down. And he took the icons down. And immediately, immediately, a fever swept the countryside. Herod's been dead for 20 years. Caesar Augustus has been dead for a decade. And now we have this Roman governor who is backed down. God's kingdom is coming. God has heard our prayers. Everything finally is going to change. We've been waiting forever. But now here it is. And that is the cue that sends John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. And what is his message? The kingdom of God is at hand. The waiting is over. This bold, crazy preacher begins to say, and he was bold and he was crazy. He's the son of a priest. He was destined for the same job. He was educated. He could have had a nice, soft life in Jerusalem as a bureaucrat in the religious organization made good money, been safe, sound for the rest of his life, but he will not follow that path. He goes to the desert and he becomes this this prophet, this fire-breathing, fire-and-brimstone tent-meeting evangelist who is just scouring the countryside with his message. And the common people of the day flock to him by droves Because that his message resonates with them. Something finally is going to change. And he's beloved. I can just see him in my mind, can't you? Beard to his waist. Wool, crazy, scratchy coat on. Honey and locust pods stuck all in his beard. (laughs) Thumping a big red Bible. Telling everybody to get right or get left. Right? Right? You, you heard the text, didn't you? I've said it often. No self-respecting institutional church today would let John the Baptist anywhere near their pulpit. <laughs> He'd walk in and say, I'd like to preach here. And we'd say, we need security just as quickly as we can get down here. That would be the response to him. He's a wild, crazed man. And then the punchline, you think I'm it? Baby, the party is just getting started. I use water. But there's somebody coming behind me that will baptize with fire. I'm not even worthy to take the sandals off of his feet. And when the religious bureaucrats come down to check him out, he's the most angry with them. I love it. Who warned you? I was hoping this would get by and you'd all get to hell as quickly as possible. (laughs) Well, it doesn't take long with a preacher like that and a person like that to get arrested, and he did. He gets thrown in prison, his voice is silenced, and it is then and only then that Jesus takes up the mantle and fills the vacuum that is created. He fills it with himself. When John is arrested, Jesus says, now it's my turn. And Jesus launches his ministry. And just a little more of the story, Jesus and John were family. They're cousins, first cousins. And it's probable that Jesus began as one of John's own disciples. Don't stumble over that. John is older. He was the sensation of the time. He was charismatic. And obviously, Jesus was with him. But eventually, the student surpasses the teacher. John would say, I must decrease. He must increase. He is the one. I am just the one that unlocked the door for him to arrive. And Jesus would say before his life ended, of all the people ever born in the world, the greatest man to ever live, the greatest man ever born of a woman, was John the Baptist. That's how a student speaks of his mentor, is it not? That's a lot to take in this morning, but it's not even half of it. It's all part of a great story. A long, twisting, rising and sinking story. The people of Israel have been waiting for this moment, waiting for a deliver. They have been waiting for what felt like forever. So go back with me just a minute more. A man named Abraham received a promise from God that a great nation would be made of his descendants and the entire world would be challenged by this nation and would be blessed by this nation. And Abraham waits, but he never lives to see it. Moses leads that eventual people out of slavery, right to the edge of the promised land. Moses works and he waits and never lives to see it. David establishes a kingdom on the hills of Mount Zion. He longs to build a temple where God's presence would finally dwell among his people. He waits and he works, but he never lives to see it. Trouble comes. The nation is all but destroyed. Then people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all the prophets tell of a day when it will all be restored. God's people will be regathered and remade. They wait and they work, but they never live to see it. A deliverer is coming. Generations wait. On and on it goes. A decade, a century, a millennia, two millennia. It seems like forever and nothing. But then it happens. It happened in the way that most big things happen. Most longed for things happen unexpectedly. Not at all like we thought it would. The promise arrives. The deliverer comes. Not as a warrior, but as a healer. The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, was not a commander on a white stallion. He was a teacher in Galilean sandals. He came not tutored in the ways of political power, but as a man of the people raised in a carpenter's shop. He wasn't born in Rome or Caesarea or Jerusalem, a silver spoon in his mouth, his backside planted on a throne, a bejeweled crown put on his head. He was born in a backwater town of shepherds and goats, laid in a manger because even the little town of Bethlehem could find no room for him. And within days, within months, he was put to the refugee road, fleeing the reach of paranoid power. Maybe the people were looking in the wrong direction. Anticipating a preconceived idea of how everything was going to work out. Hoping in misguided dreams. Maybe all that praying for kingdom to come caught them praying with their eyes closed. So that when kingdom came, they missed it. Maybe they had been waiting for so long that they forgot what they were waiting for in the first place. Are we any different? We say we are waiting for God to do something. Most of us are just coasting. Business as usual. Life as expected. Not really wanting an interruption to our status quo. We say we are hoping for the kingdom of God, but we have largely stopped looking for it, stopped living it, and we can't recognize it when it arrives. We say we believe, but we pray with our eyes closed. We aren't acting on our beliefs. We don't live like we believe. We say we have faith, but we have retreated into a life of wishful thinking, accepting pipe dreams over genuine, sustaining hope. It was my pleasure this past week in Jerusalem to introduce a few more people from A Simple Faith to Waji Nuseba. Here we are. He is the doorkeeper at the church of the Holy Sepulchre. I spoke about him a few Easter's ago. Every morning since he was a young man, he has taken a great iron key, climbed a heavy, massive ladder, and unlocked the church that contains the holiest sites of Christendom. Inside that church is Calvary itself, the place where Jesus was laid and his body was prepared for burial, and the tomb where he was buried and later resurrected years ago i asked him about this great job he had i mean how do you get that gig right i asked him about this great job that he had and he told me his story christian crusaders from europe took jerusalem from the muslims in 1099 they held the city for almost a century but ultimately lost jerusalem to the kurdish general saladin when Richard the Lionheart raised an army to retake Jerusalem, try as he might, he could not wrest it from Muslim control. So he and Saladin, exhausted by war, made a deal. We'll quit fighting. I'll go home, Richard said. You keep Jerusalem, but you must ensure me that all Christian p- pilgrims will be kept safe when they visit our holiest sites. And Saladin shook on that deal. As soon as Richard returned to England and Saladin handed the keys to the church over to the Christians, the six different denominations that share that building, the churches started fighting amongst themselves so severely to the point of bloodshed that Saladin had to take the keys back away from the Christians. And he gave it to Wajib Nuseba's family 800 years ago. And generation after generation after generation, the Wasib family has kept the keys to the holiest site in Christianity. Now here's the kicker. The Christians still fight there. Severely. The first time I was in Jerusalem, they had just had a fight so bad that the Jewish SWAT team was in the courtyard. Now get your mind around this. Christians fighting in the holiest place. Jewish police officers in the courtyard. And Wajib Nusaba is, an, is a Muslim. Holding the keys. So I ask him this time. He's got a little door. He's got a little chair. He sits by the door. He's a world-renowned figure. He's just sitting there like your granddaddy when you come in. Hey. <laughs> Serious, people, am I telling the truth? So I said to him, do you think your family's going to have this job forever? There's that word again. And he grinned. I mean, just look at that face. He grinned, and he said this. I hope not. Hope not. But until then, he keeps locking and unlocking that door, greeting every visitor who comes with a smile and a hug, no matter who they are, completing the assignment he has been giving, but always looking, always hoping, always waiting, always working and praying for the day when he can hand those keys over and a piece of the kingdom of God could arrive. That's our assignment. We work, we pray, we do all we can looking and hoping for the day when the kingdom of God finally comes right where we live.